0: Hey everybody, this is AJ, the Media and Creative Director for LifeHouse Church. We are so glad you are checking out our most recent message, and we hope it encourages you, challenges you, and most of all, inspires you to go show the world they are loved and highly valued. Enjoy the message. So, Luke tells us that the tax collectors and the sinners were gathered gathered around to, to hear Jesus. And, and they ate meals with Jesus. And Jesus welcomed them. So I want you to understand that when Luke is talking about tax collectors, he's not talking about what we would consider current day IRS agents. Although, I don't know any of them. And quite honestly, I don't want to know any of them. Ever. I certainly don't want them to send me anything in the mail. That I have to sign for to get. If you know what I'm saying. If you smell what I'm stepping in. But... These were Jewish men who, according to the Jewish people, had betrayed their own kind by aligning with the Romans and choosing to actually work for and work with the Romans by collecting what they felt like was unjust taxes from the Jewish people. Now, what the tax collectors would actually do, and when we actually know two of the tax collectors, that are listed in Scripture. Matthew was a follower of Jesus, who was a former tax collector. And then Zacchaeus, uh, who... Yeah, thank you. I, I was looking for it, yeah. You've been waiting for that all day, right? And a wee little man was he, yeah. And we got Zacchaeus, who if you were to read on in Luke, you would actually be introduced to him in just a few moments. He was another tax collector... Uh, that, that Jesus actually shares a meal with him here in just a moment. And, uh, but, but these tax collectors, they didn't just collect the taxes they had to collect. They would also extort the Jewish people and make personal profits in the same uh, light. Uh, so they would, they would steal and, and, and take away. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst of the worst. They were so bad. That you didn't even lump them in with the rest of the sinners. They were a sinner class all to themselves. You, you, you got me? You, you, got, you got to talk to me today, guys. Listen, it's Jersey Sunday. We had a great time in worship, right? So you gotta help me preach a little bit. It gets lonely up here when you do it by yourself, okay? And so they were they were the worst of the worst. And then Jesus said, or then Luke says, and the sinners, who, you know, this was pretty much everybody else. Besides the Pharisees and the scribes. It could be anybody from a common fisherman who missed uh, going to church that week. Or it could even be a prostitute who was well known in the community for her sinful acts. It could be anybody in the middle. It could be anybody who was not seen as holy by the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were men who had committed their entire life to learning and to teaching Scripture. And the scribes, and a lot of people don't know who the scribes were, the scribes were people who literally spent their entire day uh, writing, copying and writing new copies of the Old Testament or the Torah, the Law and the Prophets. And, and that's all they did. So they, they, they were, because there was no printing press, there were no Xerox machines, there were no you know, word processors, whatever, there was no printers... They spent their life, they committed their life to just by hand transcribing Scripture. So they, they knew the Scripture very well. And for the Pharisees and the scribes, as well as even the Sadducees. Uh, can I tell the cheesy preacher joke? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Yeah. I'm going to go now. You think the food's ready? <laughs> Hopefully. Who said that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you've got the Pharisees, you've got the scribes, you've got the religious people who spent a great deal of energy trying to avoid the people that Jesus hung out with the most. Jesus welcomed them. He ate meals with them. He, he does life with them. And... Um, Speaking of, of meals, I remember in a town that we used to live in, Henderson, Tennessee, right outside of Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, you ever heard of Jackson, Tennessee? There was a, a restaurant called, and, and I kid you not, the actual name of it was It Don't Matter. It Don't Matter. Because, you know, when you ask your wife or your wife asks you, you say, What do you want to eat? What do you want for supper? Eh, it don't matter. It don't matter. Do y'all get it? I mean, that's hilarious. Why are you not laughing better at that? And I'm not making it up. It was a real restaurant. It probably, made, it probably did great in terms of business. I don't know. It might still be open. It don't matter. Now, and, and that's going to be the title of my sermon today. It don't matter. Now, that's bad grammar. I know that. But I'm from the South and it's, I can get away with it. It's bad grammar, but it's good preaching. Because Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, He welcomes you into His presence. And it don't matter what you've done, where you've been, what you've said, how much you've messed up. It don't matter if it happened this morning on the way to church. It don't matter if it happened in the lobby. I hope it didn't, but it don't matter if it did. Jesus welcomes you just the same. So as we continue reading through Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables about lost things. The first one He tells is about the lost sheep. Now, most of you know this story. Jesus is kind of... In a way, He's talking about Himself. He, he says, you know, a good shepherd, if one sheep is lost uh, out of a hundred, the good shepherd will leave the ninety-nine and he will go and find the one. And when he finds the one, he will rejoice. He'll throw a party. And he'll, he, he doesn't mean that he doesn't love the ninety-nine. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the ninety-nine. And so what Jesus is illustrating, He's saying, you Pharisees and you scribes, you are the 99. You're here. I'm not, I'm not as worried about you. So I came. Jesus, Jesus later on would say that the, the well, they don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need the doctor. And he says, I came to bring healing to the sick. I came to bring salvation to the sinner. And he says, so, so the good shepherd, and Jesus is the good shepherd, he leaves the 99 to find the one. And he talks about how you throw a party when you find the one, and how just like that is what happens in heaven. When one lost person comes to Jesus, there is more celebration in heaven than when 99 don't fall away from Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he is giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God really looks like. What the church should really look like what the church culture should really feel like is that we should be more committed to finding and saving and helping lost people than making found people happy then he tells another parable Different details, but same point about a woman who lost a coin. Any coin collectors in the house? Joe? Well, he's not here. He's probably finding coins. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, if you're watching. I didn't mean to make fun of you, but I did, and I, and I did. <laughs> I don't, any, any collectors of anything? What you got Paul? Board games that's boring anyway. <laughs> i'm so glad you said that, and I can make fun of you publicly. <laughs> huh? yeah you got the 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 coin collecting lady who has a hundred of these coins and she loses one, and she searches the whole house to find her coins. She sweeps and 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 so um. She finally finds her coin and, and then she throws a coin finding party. And everybody comes over. You guys ever lost something valuable to you? Yeah? Anybody ever lose their keys? Kristen, raise your hand. Anybody ever lose your, your wallet? Kristen, raise your hand. He's gonna throw a shoe at me. I got you some air tags, baby. You're gonna be all right. Air AirTag's cheaper than buying all new keys and getting a new wallet. I'm preaching today. You stay back there and be quiet. You scared me, Carlos. Anyway, and then Jesus tells the second par- or third parable. And we often calls, call this parable the parable of the prodigal son. Now, if, you got your, if you're looking at a print Bible, if it says that, it doesn't actually say that in the Scripture text. It might be a heading that says, you know, a parable of the prodigal son. Or it might say the parable of the lost son. Um, uh, but you need to know that that's not original to the Scripture. That is what the editors, if your Bible is an NIV, then a company called Biblica decided to put that in there, or if it's an NLT, a company called Tyndale, decided to put that in there as a heading to help you. And they're great. I'm not saying they're bad. They're great. They help us find things in Scripture when we're looking for them. But nowhere in the Scripture does Jesus say, let me tell you a parable about a prodigal son, or let me tell you a parable about a lost son. He actually says, there was a man who had two sons. So if anything, it's a parable about a man... And two sons. It's not a parable about just a son. It's not a parable even about just two sons. It's a parable about a father and his children. So this is what it says in verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So the father distributed the assets to him. Now, you have to understand how inheritance works in this culture, in this time in history. So, if there are two sons, what you would do, first of all, first of all, an inheritance then and even today normally isn't attained until after the death of the father or whoever is passing down the inheritance. So the younger son goes to his father, and this is in essence what he is saying I don't want you, but I want your stuff. That'll preach right there, won't it? I want what. I want the hand of God, but I don't want the face of God. I want to seek and receive the blessings that He offers, but I don't want to do the things that He says. So, so the son goes to the father and he says, you know, I wish you were dead. So give me what's coming to me. And So the father, for whatever reason, chooses to oblige by this. And the way the inheritance would work is since there was two sons, you would actually divide the inheritance into threes, into thirds. And the oldest son would get the two-thirds, and then the youngest son would get one-third. That's just kind of how it worked, that the oldest, the eldest son in this culture would get a double portion of the inheritance. And so the father does it, he divides it equally, and if you read the text, it actually sounds like he gives the oldest son his share of the inheritance as well. That's really not... uh, Elaborated on very much, but it seems to read that way. And then verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, that word foolish is where we often get the word prodigal from. It is actually, little fun fact here, it is actually the only time in scripture where this Greek word is used in, in the way that it is used. Now, we think, at least I used to think, that the word prodigal meant something akin to just bad. You know, we, we will even, sometimes, if you've been in church, if you've been to conferences, if you've been to meetings, prayer meetings, people will often say, let's pray for prodigals. And, and what they usually mean when they say that is let's pray for children who were raised up in the kingdom, who were raised up in church, who later in life decided to go their own way and stop living for God and stop going to church and stop pursuing God. And that's fine. I'm not saying that we can't call it that. But that's not what the word means. It's it's just a misunderstanding of the word prodigal. The actual definition of prodigal means to be wastefully extravagant. It means to spend without restraint. It means to pursue with reckless abandon. It goes on in verse 14. Luke says, After he had spent everything, his whole entire one-third portion of his inheritance, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. He spent all he had, all that he had been given, and all of his resources ran out. And as I read that, and this isn't really part of this message, it's, it's not really the point of this parable, but I was just reminded about how often in my life I feel like I come to the end of my rope. I, I've given it all I've got to give, I've done all I know to do, and I feel like I have nothing left to offer. And, and if I'm being very honest with you, I find myself in that situation more times than I would care to admit. And sometimes I find myself in that situation over, if I told you what they were, you would say, why, are you, why is this such a big deal to you? Often, I find myself in places where I feel like my resources have ran out. But aren't you, aren't you glad that the Father's resources never run out? And another thing that you need to understand about this story right now in this moment is that you have tax collectors and sinners listening, but you also have Pharisees and scribes listening. And in this moment as Jesus is telling this story and He's talking about how this son is down and out and He's lost and He doesn't have anything left, you have to understand that in this moment those Pharisees and scribes are ecstatic. Because this guy is getting what he deserves. Because he has disrespected his father, he has dishonored his family, he has left town, he has left everything behind, and he deserves for bad things to happen to him. And according to their law and according to their customs, the father was actually within his rights to have his son executed if he so chose to do so. Much less actually give him the stuff he asked for. Verse 15 says, Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Do you guys know how Jewish people, especially of that day and age, felt about pigs? They, didn't, they, they were considered an unclean animal. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't eat them, which, which you know... It makes you wonder if, if the reason why they were always in such a bad mood is because they had never enjoyed bacon or baby back ribs. I've never been upset while I was eating bacon. I have, I have never cried eating baby back ribs. Never. I've never been angry with pulled pork. Verse 16 says, He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now, I don't know if no one is referring to the people or if those pigs were just really selfish (laughs) pigs. I'm kind of confused by that point, but I'm just assuming that those were some stingy pigs and they wouldn't share their slop. Anyway, so he's broke, he's hungry, he's working with pigs, which is adding insult to injury. And once again, the Pharise- Jesus is setting this up so well that, and making the Pharisees and scribes extremely happy because as He tells this story with every, every next sentence Jesus is giving them another reason to celebrate that justice has been served to this Son who dishonored His family and dishonored His Father to such a great degree. It goes on in verse 17. When He came to His senses. Now, you might have a different version of the Bible, and it might say something else. It might say, you know, when he remembered, or my favorite, though, is the versions that actually say, when he came to himself, when he rediscovered who he really was, is what Jesus is saying at the very beginning of that verse. And who was he really? He wasn't a pig farmer. He wasn't broke, he was his son. And when he remembered who he really was, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He came to his senses and he remembered who he was. And the thing that defined who he was was not what he did. It wasn't where he was. It wasn't the sins that he had committed. The thing that defined him was who he was in relation to his father. And he remembered that he was a son of a good father. It goes on in verse 18. He says, I'll get up. I'll go to my Father. Come on, that's the greatest decision any of us can ever make, whether we're lost in sin, or whether we're lost not knowing what to do in a decision, or whether we need God to provide for us. The best thing we can ever do is to decide to go back to the Father. If you're hurt, if you've messed up, if you're in need, if you're, if you're lost, if you're scared, if you're worried, don't, don't post about it on Facebook. All these John Maddens of Facebook, y'all. I've been one before. So I, John Matt, he was a play-by-play analyst, right? Giving you the play-by-play of how bad it is. Of everything that's wrong. Of everything that hasn't gone right. Maybe you've got somebody in your, in your text messages on your phone. Because certainly nobody in this room would ever do that. You guys are too holy and smart and righteous for that where you've got all these text messages. Hopefully it's blue bubbles where people are you know, they're sending you the complaints. They're sending you the problems. Blue bubbles are iMessages. If you have an iPhone, you understand. Praise the Lord. So the son decides to write a three-part sermon. I was talking to Mark. He's doing security in the, um, in the lobby this morning. Aren't you grateful for our, for our safety and security team? And um, I said, "Man, why don't you just preach today?" And he said, "Oh, I'm not a preacher. Can I just tell you, everybody's a preacher if you get them excited enough about something. Some of y'all are preaching UT Vol for Life fandom, and some of y'all are smarter than that. I'm, sk- I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, Robbie. Please don't beat me up after church, because I know you could, without a doubt." He writes a three-part sermon. He says, I've sinned against you and God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And if you'll let me, I'll live my life serving you. Now there are a lot of men and women who are Christians who have adopted this mentality for their life. They live in this, this, this constant state of guilt and condemnation, even though Jesus has died and and rose again from the dead to free you from that life of guilt and condemnation. But you have convinced yourself that in order to actually be right with God, you have to spend your life beating yourself up for the things that you can't change that you've already done. And feeling guilty for the life that you're living. So you, you're saved, you're going to heaven, but you're living like hell on earth because you don't know the power of the cross. The power of the cross has the power to save you from hell, death, and the grave right now. Not just then. So you keep living in this life where you, where your, your inner talk, your inner dialogue reminds you of, of the mistakes, reminds you of the sin, and, and, and you don't feel worthy to be counted among the children of God. And instead of saying that you're a child of God, you live your life trying to serve God, hoping that in your service to God, you'll finally make yourself right with God, even though that's already been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. I'm preaching so much better than you're letting on right now. Thank you for that book clap. He says, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And if you'll let me, I'll I'll live my life serving you. I just—I'll get to this in a moment, but I have to tell you right now: God is not looking for servants. You know why He's not looking for servants? It's because He doesn't have any needs. God doesn't need you. He wants you. God is looking for sons and daughters. So verse 20 says that he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, and a lot of times we just kind of glance over that. But can I tell you that every detail of Scripture is important. And Jesus, as he is telling this parable, is putting this little phrase in there to help us understand that no matter how far away from God you are, no matter how far away from God you feel, the moment you turn around to say, God, I want to go back to you, you will find out that he has been following you all along. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The dad saw him. Had compassion on him, ran to him. You got to understand something about this culture. For for this father, who was apparently a very wealthy man, a very well-respected man. For him to, to run and not have somebody else go do it for him, is is he's throwing away his dignity. He's throwing away his pride. And in this moment, Jesus is actually foreshadowing for us what it looks like for God to say, I so love the world that I sent, that I gave my one and only son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The dad embraces his son. Now this is so beautiful. You have to to lean into this. Where did the son come from? He came from feeding pigs. Have any of you ever been to a pig farm? I'm not going to tell any Arkansas jokes right here, okay, Brooke? (laughs) My uncle raised hogs. And I remember as a little boy, about the time we would get two miles from my uncle's house, I could smell it before I ever got there. If you've been around it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you don't want to go there. And so the son has been feeding pigs, taking care of hogs, and, and he's been walking for who knows how long on this journey back to his father, constantly rehearsing this sermon in his head. I'm, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just let me be a servant so I can, so I can make it up to you one day. The father sees his son from a far away off before the son probably ever even saw the father. The father takes off running after his son grabs him, hugs him, doesn't care about the dignity that he sacrificed in allowing his son to take his inheritance earlier, doesn't care about the dignity that he lost by choosing to run and chase after his son, doesn't care about the dignity that he's losing by hugging somebody who's been around unclean animals and absolutely probably smells really bad. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. What he cares about is his son. Now, if I'm just going to be this guy who wants to make everything modern, it would be like this. We're talking about the God who doesn't give a rip about what you wear to church, about what music style is played in your church. He doesn't care if you sing off a screen or out of a book. He doesn't care about that stuff. He's not a God who's addicted to a certain style. He's not a God who's worried about a certain tradition. He's a God who loves people. And that's really, ultimately, all he cares about when it's all said and done. Everything else is made up by man. And it is up for debate and it is up to... We can get rid of it or we can start it. It doesn't matter. You know what matters? People matter. And we at LifeHouse Church, we say we exist to show the world they're loved and highly valued. We don't exist to play good music or to preach good sermons. We don't exist to have events with food. Those are, every single one of those are tools. And they are all up. If at any point in time one of those tools stops working, we'll change it. We'll get a new tool. Because what we really care about, what we strive to really care about, is the thing that Jesus obviously really cares about. And that is people. The Son said to the Father, He's got a sermon, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Point number one. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Point number two. The son's got two of his three points out. He's telling the father, I'm sure the father is squeezing him and he's like, Dad, I'm sorry. I've sinned against... You You know what I'm talking about? He's holding him real tight. And the dad... Honestly, I don't think he was even listening. Because this is what it goes on in verse 22. But the father told his servants, doesn't even acknowledge the son's apology, doesn't even acknowledge the son's, you know, very well rehearsed sermon here. He told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate. With a feast. Because this son of mine was dead. And is alive alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate this. I love it. There is no explanation that the son can offer. There is no time where the dad says. Alright sit down. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you did. Now, we're not going to let this happen again, are we? You're not going to take my money and go off and do bad things. There's none of that. There's no explaining it. There's no apologizing for it. It is nothing but celebration. It is a party. It is joyful. The, the, the dad says, let's get him the best clothes. Now, if we're doing it today, I don't think, and I mean, at least not in the United States of America, we wouldn't be finding the best robe. At least I hope not, because that's awkward and weird and strange. What, what are some designer brands? I don't know what any of them are. Nicole would know. <laughs> Gucci, is that still like a big thing? I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't know Gucci if it hit me in the face, y'all. The best jewelry, the best shoes. I do know about that, though. AJ knows. It wouldn't be those, though. It'd, be, it'd have to be Jordan's, not LeBron's, because he's not even a real basketball player. And the best steak, I know a lot about that. We're talking about A5 Wagyu, straight from Japan, y'all. Got more fat than beef in it. (laughs) Just saw the faces, people were like, oh my gosh. I'm having fun, because if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. But I, I want you to understand the picture that Jesus is painting here. The son, who had taken one third of the father's assets, has left and has spent it all. The son comes back. And the father that had given him so much, gives him even more. Give him the best robe. Give him the best ring. Give him the best shoes and give him the best meal because we are about to have the best party. That is the generosity. I want you to take this to your heart right now. That is the generosity of our Heavenly Father. So let me ask you, we call this story the story of the prodigal son. But who in this story is actually wastefully extravagant? Who in this story is willing to spend without restraint? Who in this story is willing to give and give recklessly? If anybody's a prodigal in this story, it's the Father. Aren't you grateful that God will never stop spending on you? He will never, no matter what, stop spending His love, His grace, His goodness, and His blessings on you. Don, will you help me out? I wish, I wish the story ended there. But it doesn't. What Jesus has done is He has used the younger son to illustrate the tax collectors and the sinners. Remember, they're the ones that are gathered around to hear Him. But there is another crowd already also gathered. Remember? The Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus goes on and He begins to tell a part of the story that will relate to them. Now you got to know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're probably a little annoyed at this point. Because by their understanding, this father should not have done this. This father should have said, You are no son of mine. Get out of my sight. Go away. But instead, we have the exact opposite approach. So he goes on, Jesus says, Now, his older son was in the field as he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. I don't know how you hear dancing, but he did. Maybe they had tap shoes on. I don't know. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning, What do these things mean? The servant says, Your brother is here, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf. There's, there's something going on with this cow, y'all. They have been saving this calf for a special occasion. I, I'm seriously, though, your father has slaughtered the, not a, but the fattened calf. There there was something planned in the future that the father had said, no, 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 we celebrate today. Because your brother is back safe and sound. Verse 28, then he became angry and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Now this is the second time the father has pursued one of his sons. I want you to catch that. This is the second time the father has given up his dignity for his relationship with his children. He replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving. There's that that word again. It's interchangeable with the word servant. I have been serving you. God doesn't want your service. He wants your heart. God doesn't want you living for Him. He wants you living with Him. I've been slaving all these years. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't say when my brother, he says when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The father says, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What we realize as we read the parable of a father and his two sons is that both of his children were far from the father. One just happened to be closer in proximity to the Father. Neither of the children cared about the Father. Instead, they wanted the Father's stuff. One wanted it now while the other was willing to be a little more patient for it. One was lost in sin. The other was lost in religion. One Wanted it now. One was willing to wait. One was close by. But still distant. One was distant and distant in heart. And that's how the story ends. There is no resolution. We don't know what the older brother did. And the reason why I guess we don't know is because Jesus is telling this story to the scribes and the Pharisees, so the ball is technically in their court. What are you going to do? Can you imagine how much different the story would have been had the older brother greeted his younger brother before the father saw him? Can I tell you that that happens a lot of times in our churches today? It happens a lot of times with each of us where God brings a younger brother into this building or into your life. But our focus all too often is more on what they've done than who they are. And who they are is someone who is loved and highly valued by the Father. And I wanted to preach this today because we we live in a we live in a season in our world in our life where anger and a critical spirit, a judgmental attitude, and angry opinions are a dime a dozen. And we want to argue what version of the Bible That we should be reading out of, or the details of the Trinity, or how to baptize people. And the entire time, Jesus is just saying, Why are you so worried about these things that I never even talked about? You know what Jesus did talk about? Loving people. He talked about the heart of the Father for humanity. The entire reason Jesus says that He came to this earth is to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only reason you're not in heaven with Him right now is so that you, as a son or a daughter of the Father, can take upon yourself the mantle of responsibility given to you by Jesus himself to seek and to save those who were lost if you are here today if you're joining us online today If you're far from God, can I tell you it don't matter? He's chasing after you. If you have been going through the motions of church and religion and life, it don't matter because He is calling you back to your first love. If you've you've messed up, it don't matter. I'm sick and tired of people telling me they they can't serve or they can't lead because they've done something 10 years ago or even 10 days ago. They just don't feel qualified anymore. Hey, there's nobody in this room qualified. But each of us are called. If you've lost the wonder, if the message of the gospel doesn't excite you anymore, if it doesn't remind you of your absolute desperation for an outside person to save you from yourself, you've lost the wonder. He wants to rekindle that in you. He wants to remind you of the greatest love story ever told. One between a loving father and his children where he is willing to pay any price to restore a relationship that we broke. Even if it means giving up himself. Even if it means sacrificing his dignity. Or even if it meant for Jesus laying aside his title, Son of God, to become Son of Man.